who's trickling in? Who's trickling in? Either the kids really fill out the pews or we're really uh, that, that patchy today. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if it's kind of there, bro. Is it? Parking lot's empty. Did you still park in your windy, cockeyed way? <laughs> Rebel. All right. Well, I feel like I've been up here pretty much since we started, so that's, that's fun. I know what James feels like on his sermon month now, because I'm, and Josh, because he's up here all the time. So, yeah. Um, anyways, so we have been talking about leadership, obviously, and the training and equipping um, aspect of that. So we have one more week. This is the last week up here, um, and we will... Um, continue on that path. May or may not have dabbled last week into my later months in the year when it comes to the mentality of leadership and understanding that, but that's okay. We'll figure that out, and uh, nevertheless, here we are. So. so to recap what we've touched on so far in terms of training and equipping uh, leaders, in uh, the first week, we talked about it as being urgent. Um, so time will only further highlight uh, and stress the importance and need of sound, godly leadership. We talked, uh, the, the basis of, of, of a godly leader, and we made sure to lay this foundation, was in understanding the need for scripture, not just for, um, not just for a leader, but for all of us, for the record, but especially for someone who um, wants to own their role of being a good leader to people. Um, we talked about leadership as not something that is um, to be professionalized um, or made impossible by some sort of gauntlet of credentials or prerequisites. Um, and that's not the model we're given in the, in, in the disciples and the formation of the early church. Uh, we talked about leadership needing to be, needing to have a proper understanding of submission to God's will. Right leadership has a proper perspective and doesn't have an agenda of any kind or any sort of selfish ambition, so we talked about that. Um, last time I was up here, we talked about um, leadership needing to understand um, service. Uh, a godly leadership is completely selfless, and we follow our model for that. Um, leadership in the perfect man that Jesus was, and he was uh, a man who served all of creation. Uh, his leadership style is, again, diametrically opposed to how the world would, um, how the world would um, suggest a leader should act. We talked about leadership needing to be content. Right leadership allows for uh, contentment when it's operating within its proper framework for what it's supposed to look like. Uh, and this is how a godly leader finds peace in what it is they do because a life of servant leadership, um, if you recall, is thankless and tiring, but ultimately the reward for that is, um, is um, when we understand who it's for and whom it's for. And then, so with that, remember it was sort of coupled content but diligent, so as to sort of curb this um, pervasive, um, potentially pervasive mindset of laziness, um, right leadership is diligent. So if you remember the word spude that I threw out there, being sincerely convicted. A godly leader is not lazy, but passionately wants to be the best leader they can be for Christ and his church, and they are consumed, that's what this word spude means, they're consumed with their calling, and they want to do right by it. 
And then uh, my last point, the last time I was up here, so not last week, but the week before, because last week was resurrection, was just a word of caution that understanding, um, understanding our leadership roles um, as significant and important and improper leadership, um, doing it poorly, is demoralizing to God's people. So I ended on a word of caution. Um, it's demoralizing to God's people because they become scattered when there's bad leadership. Um, and remember, godly leadership is supposed to unite and protect and to teach and admonish and all these different things. So we ended up with a word of caution. Um, so the final question we'll seek to you know, sort of understand and get some clarity on is how can I, how can we learn what learn the things leaders know? And the answer to the question is a simple one, meaning uh, it's not hard to remember. Uh, and it's one that you might even roll your eyes at because uh, maybe it's one that's been a consistent message that we've tried to um, continually beat the drum on um, and get the importance across, especially in the last couple of years here at ABF. Um, so if we previously, previously spoke about the importance of scripture as the, as the foundation for all of us, again, but especially for leaders, then we also need to know and be grounded in two other things. Anyone have a guess? I can't hear. I already said that. Yes. There you go. Scripture, doctrine, and the local church. And specifically for today's purposes, um, the discipleship that comes uh, through your active involvement and participation within the local church. So... Um, I know it's kind of right self-serving of us and confirmation bias. Of course we're going to talk about that. That's what you've been talking about here at Olathe. Yeah, well, that's because we try to follow what the Bible says, so. Yay. Yay for us. Um, it's not locked. Now it's locked. So, that's what we're going to focus our efforts on today. The doctrine part and the importance of discipleship and being involved in the local church and um, the significance of that. So, here we go. Well, let me take a drink of water. So we live in kind of a, a scary time where a lot of information floods our inputs pretty much at all times. I think we all understand that on some level. On every screen and on every drive and every billboard we pass, uh, in every song you hear, in every book you read, in every... TV show and movie you watch and every video game you play, every person you surround yourself with and maybe even scarier, every person you allow your kids to be surrounded with or you, you, know, you drop your kids off with. We're constantly in this rapid state of processing information. Um, we're constantly in this rapid state of processing information that sort of only by God's grace and awesome complex design that our our supercomputers don't overheat or something because we are constantly in this inundation, this rapid state of processing what's being thrown at us. Every minute we're asking ourselves these questions, or we should be asking ourselves these questions. What's, bring, what's being presented to me here? What's being said in this thing or that thing? Or what am I listening to? How am I allowing this thing to shape how I understand the world? And we seem to be at an all-time high threat level for just the war over our minds because of this, this time we find ourselves in, this age of information that we find ourselves in. Uh, 
and the world has turned their back on God again uh, when it uh, once more, and it's us as believers who are the weird ones and who are being persecuted for the way in which we live and the way in which we raise our children and the, those questions that we are always asking ourselves, you know, why, why are you so critical, all these different things, we're seen as, as the weirdos. And that's just in the secular world, when we go out in the secular world and we are trying to, you know, challenge these things and ask these questions. We face a similar problem in the church, unfortunately, today. Questions about basic, fundamental things, the nature of who Jesus is, uh, questions about sin and questions about um, salvation and heaven and hell and questions about the reliability of scripture, questions about everything that um, you sort of take for granted nowadays is um, being thrown into, thrown into doubt. Um, and the problems, of course, aren't just the questions themselves. Questions are always good. It's good to ask questions and seek to understand those, seek truth and all these things. But the question is not in, or the, the problem is not in the questions, but in the answers that have become sort of normative in a large portion of the church, unfortunately. You know, it doesn't really matter. Um, just, you know, love God and everything else is sort of up for debate. And even like your loving God is sort of how you do that is up for debate. And who is God? And really, it's just an idea of who God is. And all these things are just sort of, you know, have no meaning, carry no weight anymore. People say things to us as, as believers like, how dare you indoctrinate your, your kids into thinking this, or how dare you take them to that and force this onto them, and um, they should be free to explore is a, is a common thing that you hear. Free to explore what they want to believe and what truth they want to follow. Um, and they look at you funny, and they you know, pass judgments on you quietly or passive-aggressive or whatever, you know, you have these awkward interactions where they clearly think about, think something about who you are and, and why, but they don't want to say it. Those are my favorites. Um, but sort of newsflash, guys, and uh, maybe just a reminder for some of you, but doctrine, so we're talking about doctrine and the significance and importance of doctrine. Doctrine is important. The teaching on particular subjects is very important, and I would encourage you guys to respond to those um, criticisms and attitudes and um, treatments of people um, in that same way that, yes, doctrine is important. What I'm indoctrinating my kid with is important. And sort of do so unapologetically. Um, I do this because I want to raise my kids in such a way that reflects the importance of what is taught to them, you know? And whether they admit it or not, these people that, you know, criticize you or want to throw that, that line out there, you know, you shouldn't indoctrinate your kids or force this onto them. Um, whether they can admit it or not, um, what we believe about a subject, it, it affects all aspects of our lives, even the small things, um, and that includes, obviously, our spiritual lives. And for the record, anyone that sort of claims that, claims that, worldview that, you know, they, they don't do that or they really try not to. Uh, it's just sort of um, wrong and logically inconsistent because everything you do and say and everything you don't do and don't say is teaching your kids something. And why do you send your kids to school if you want to allow them to freely explore who they are? Why do you want them to understand the fundamental truths of math if you want them to freely explore? Like, why do you want them to understand any number of things? Um, it's just sort of a logically inconsistent place to to be and stand on, so 
know that when these people are you know, attacking you for these things. Um, and it's only the Christian worldview which speaks into all these areas of life, including things like math, um, that allows us to have a, a fully shaped and fully framed and fully articulated and reasoned worldview. Theirs does not because it falls short. They only want to hold that position uh, on certain things. So I would challenge that, but the word itself, doctrine, has become sort of synonymous with um, bad or sinister, especially when we're talking about kids. Kids is always a, a good um, litmus test for things, you know, like you can really tell where someone stands on when you put um, kids in the picture, you know. Um, so again, this sort of, this word of doctrine has this bad connotation to it, um, but it's not bad. It's not a bad word at all. It's not a bad word used in scripture. Um, the word translated um, from the Greek is didaskalia. Didaskalia. And it simply means teaching. And of the, I don't know, 21 or so times that the word is used in the New Testament scriptures, about 14 of them are used in the books of Timothy and in Titus, books specifically about being better leaders and teaching. Uh, so when we talk about biblical doctrines, what we're talking about is biblical teachings. So, shocking, I know. Um, hence why scripture is the starting point, why we started there. Scripture is the ground, the, the foundation for, for us as leaders. Um, it's always the starting point, it's always the fallback. Um, but anyway, so we break up doctrine in a bunch of different categories um, for understanding things. We break it up uh, in terms of the teachings about God, and we just call it theology. We talk about the teachings of Christ and Christology, and the teachings about man, anthropology, and of salvation, soteriology, and about the church, ecclesiology, the word ecclesia, you, some of you might be familiar with, the teachings about the future, called eschatology. All these things are important, very important, and what you believe about one aspect of doctrine very well will probably shape how you view the rest of these things. Um, they all sort of are interconnected and intertwined. And the significance of sound doctrine is important because, again, it helps to shape your entire worldview. If we believe God is all-knowing, all-seeing, and all-powerful, then we look at life differently than if we believe he is limited in a certain way. If we believe in God, who, in a God who is intimately involved in our lives and wanting relationship, which we do, FYI, um, we act differently than if we believe him to be, the, they call it the clock setter, a God who, you know, set creation and then stepped back and now has no part in it whatsoever. Um, what we believe about Christ is important. Was he fully man or fully God or fully both? Um, how you answer this question not only, you know, impacts your understanding of Christ, but also your view of salvation, because Christ made claims. Christ did things that would affect how you view um, salvation, your soteriology. And what you believe about man, for example, uh, will affect how you think about salvation, whether it's needed, and how you view your relationship with God. So all these things are absolutely interconnected, and you get the point. One commentator says this, when people repeat sayings like, Christianity is a life, not a doctrine, they are either buying into a cultural distaste for claims to absolute truth or pushing back on what they see as a dry or academic approach to the Bible. And such statements reveal a complete misunderstanding of what doctrine is. We see in scripture that we are instead nourished by doctrine in order to be good leaders for Christ. Uh, in the first letter to Timothy in chapter four, 
Paul says, If you explain these things to the brothers and sisters, Timothy, you will be a worthy servant of Christ Jesus, one who is nourished by the message of faith and the good teaching you have followed. Do not waste time arguing over godless ideas and old wives' tales. Instead, train yourselves to be godly. Physical training is good, but training for godliness is much better, promising benefits in this life and in the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. This is why we work hard and continue to struggle, for our hope is in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, and particularly of all believers. Teach these things, and insist everyone learn them. Don't let anyone think less of you because you are young. Be an example to all believers in what you say, in the way you live, in your love, your faith, and your purity. Until I get there, focus on reading the scriptures to the church, encouraging the believers, and teaching them. Do not neglect the spiritual gift you received through the prophecy spoken over you when the elders of the church laid their hands on you. Give your complete attention to these matters. Throw yourself into the task so that everyone will see your progress. Keep a close watch on how you live and on your teaching. Stay true to what is right for the sake of your own salvation and the salvation of those who hear you. I underlined teaching, teaching, teaching several times in my notes here. The same word is used, didaskalia, didaskalia, in uh, his letter to Titus. He must have a strong belief in the trustworthy message he was taught. Then he will be able to encourage others with wholesome teaching and those who oppose it where they are wrong. And at the end of his letter to the Romans, Paul says, Now I make one more appeal, my dear brothers and sisters. Watch out for people who cause divisions and upset people's faith by teaching things contrary to what you have been taught. The Bible is clear on its use of the word and the importance of sound teaching. And Paul's letter to Timothy was to address exactly that, improper teaching of doctrine and things that had already been established um, about the gospel message and who Christ is and what he did and what that means for us. In his letter to the Ephesians, he also says, Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will no longer become, be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every kind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever that they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. If we view our, <clears throat> if we view our faith as uh, this weak, you know, merely loving Jesus and debating the rest and nothing else really matters, um, at the expense of understanding theological truths, then as leaders, we are poorly equipped to guard those things, to guard what's already been established throughout time and to guard against right teaching because there is such a thing as right teaching. And you guys should be unapologetic about that when you're, when you're talking to people. There is such a thing as right teaching. It's not, that's good for you and this is just what I believe. There is right teaching and there is wrong teaching, especially when it comes to... Um, who God is and what scripture has to say. Uh, consider this survey, sorry, I lost myself for a second. Consider this survey of um, Protestant Christians from not actually very long ago. 
where it says 11% of these people who claim to be Christians strongly agree that Jesus was the first creature created by God. 17% believe that the Father is more divine than Jesus. And 35% believe the Holy Spirit to be a spiritual force rather than a personal being. In a follow-up to this survey, a writer writes, such basic elements, that such basic elements of the Christian faith could be misunderstood by significant portions of people who claim to be believers displays a shocking ignorance of biblical doctrine. Also, since these specific issues were settled by early church councils, such as Nicaea in the year 325, we see also a disconnect between today's Christians and the historical roots of their faith. It's doubtful that those on the survey even realize that these are heretical beliefs. Having a firm grasp of correct doctrine prevents us from adopting false doctrine. Um, doctrinal study grounds our morality in the truth of Scripture and enables us to live lives that glorify God and enables us to lead the way that we should lead because there is a way that that should be done. We equip ourselves by being able to articulate our beliefs in a consistent and biblical manner through Scripture, through the teaching, through the practice of teaching right doctrine that has already been established. <clears throat> scripture and doctrine. Talked about Scripture in week one. Just talked about doctrine. And finally, we need to have an accountable relationship with the church and specifically through a discipleship relationship with those who we would view as our leaders if we want to know the things our leaders know. Uh, let's for a second sort of imagine the trade crafts. Colin is here, okay. So Colin will appreciate this, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to use metaphors that aren't just sports because I'm trying to you know, be more well-rounded, but I can do sports all day, but not a lot of athletes in here, maybe a couple. So I'm trying to speak to different audiences. But imagine the trade crafts. Would an electrician want to go to a plumber, and John's here too, would an electrician want to go to a plumber to learn how to run high voltage line or something like that? I don't know. I don't know the ins and outs of running high voltage line. Forgive me, Colin. Would a carpenter want to go to a painter to learn how to frame a multi-story house? Probably not to learn. Maybe get some input or something. I don't know. Um, but would a plumber want to consult with a tile setter to know how to connect city lines into residential ones? Probably not. Again, forgive me if I you know, butchered that or this a sloppy metaphor, but you get the point, right? The point is that we don't look somewhere we have no business looking uh, in order to find out how to do something specific or unique. And the same is true for how we understand leadership from within the church. And understanding the previous point earlier in the month is important that the predominant model that we see in the New Testament scriptures and accounting of the, uh, the formation of the early church is that God's word is taught, scripture was taught, the gospel message of Christ was spread, and that people, both young and old, remember we're talking about referencing Timothy here, he was young, um, are brought up in the church, church, church to teach and preach those things that were taught, scripture and the gospel, and right teaching. Again, people like Titus and Timothy 
traveled with Paul uh, and lived intimately, closely with him um, and learned from him and were trusted to carry on in the ministry with him as partners and servants with Christ. And they didn't take a donkey to Rome, for example, to go be schooled on how to be better leaders within the church because there's no business in doing that. We need to understand that if we want to be effective in really knowing what leaders know, uh, then we have to be in an intimate relationship with them so that we can fully absorb the wisdom that they have to offer. Um, and the wisdom that comes from their, their life lived in their ministry. Uh, developing as a leader and knowing what a leader knows is not divorced from discipleship relationship. To view it that way, to view discipleship as distinct from developing as a leader would be to propose that discipleship doesn't fully uh, impact us in any sort of meaningful way. And if, if, if the church, if we approach leadership that way, leadership development in that way as distinct from discipleship, then we're sort of at risk of unintentionally communicating a, a false, and setting up a false dichotomy that your leadership can be divorced from discipleship um, and from a faithful walk with God. And being a disciplined and godly leader should never be that, should never be positioned as somehow disconnected from living righteous and holy. If we approach our training and equipping uh, to leadership in a way other than connected to the local church, to the local body, fostered through discipleship, uh, then the emphasis will inevitably be, be it probably default to skills, you know, what someone naturally gifted at, how is someone naturally um, a leader? And it wouldn't be focused on the character that a leader, um, uh, uh, I want to say envelopes, but that's the wrong word. Envelops? Is a, envelops. Uh, the character that a leader envelops. And when uh, competency and skill sort of outpace um, character, then as leaders, we're set up to fall and to fail the people. Uh, we don't serve the next generation well if we teach them how to lead without teaching them the character that comes with um, godly leadership. And this is learned through a discipleship relationship, learning after the people that have been living it. The two work together holistically. That always does. That's the beauty of our worldview, guys, that everything works together for the same common goal. And we need to both, and we need both of those things to be effective Christian leaders. Um, Discipleship is um, often the sort of less visible but essentially, but absolutely essential part of the foundation that we build our leadership um, on. Uh, and if we want it to be viable, especially long term. Leaders have to be willing, just the same as Christ was, so sort of the flip side of it, um, have to be willing to live with their people. And I sort of talked about this, uh, no, yeah, two weeks ago, talking about you know serving. Um, Christ said at the uh, at the table with his disciples just before um, his crucifixion, he says, "You have stayed with me in my time of trial, and just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I now grant you the right to eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones jud judging the twelve tribes." The disciples saw Jesus at his weakest moments and through all his temptations. Uh, and their sort of dramatic change in their lives from being ordinary people, fishermen, and 
you know, lawyers and doctors and such, um, their lives were changed by living with that, by seeing the example that Christ set, um, by seeing him successfully deal with every kind of temptation and inconsistency of life um, that we all face as well. He faced himself. So if you want to know what a leader knows, if you want to know what to expect and what is required, um, follow them. Follow them with that same open heart that the disciples did because they are working at following the same model that Christ himself set. That's the leader's goal, is to follow the example. And of course, nobody's perfect in that. We're on a, we're on a scale, right? We're going up. Um, we should be. But follow them because that's the example that they're following. And the Apostle Paul consistently um, encourages that too, lays down that message in his writings. And um, while, of course, it's not specific to leadership in certain circumstances, but it's more general to us as believers, it's sound wisdom nonetheless. He says in his letter to the Corinthians, after he's talking about all these things, he says at the beginning of chapter 11, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And in his letter to the Philippians, brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. And at some point when I was scrolling, I deleted my favorite one from 1 Corinthians chapter 4. It's my cursor's right here, and it's just deleted. So good thing I have the other part written down. I'm going to read it from the actual Bible, God forbid, than just the notes I took. Bear with me. 1 Corinthians 4. 14:17 I am not writing these things to shame you but to warn you as my beloved children for even if you had 10,000 others to teach you about Christ you have only one spiritual father for I became your father in Christ Jesus when I preached the good news to you so I urge you to imitate me That's why I have sent Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. He will remind you how I follow Christ Jesus, just as I teach in all the churches wherever I go. And in in, uh, his letter to the Thessalonians, in this way you imitated both us and the Lord. And then the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 13, remember your leaders who taught you the word of God. Think of all the good that has come from their lives and follow their example in the faith. The Greek word that's used in, in these passages is mimeomai. So think mimic, mimeomai, mimic, um, imitate me. One of the things that I really appreciate about like the community of mixed martial arts, okay, so now I'm going back to sports, so, uh, about the community of mixed martial arts is the, the level of um, respect uh, they give to sort of the master-apprentice relationship. Uh, I don't know if that's sort of just intrinsically connected to like the subject matter, like if you don't respect me, I'll snap you like a twig. I don't know if that's just naturally born into that, but there's a, there's a huge respect given to the, the master-apprentice relationship, um, and there's something to be, to be learned there ourselves. You're under that person's tutelage to observe and to learn all that there is to be learned, and you have a deep respect for them for wanting to give that to you. Uh, in the same vein, we should enter our, into our leadership discipleship, so when we're striving to be that, um, we should enter into it with the same level of humility and respect. And this is um, all the more effective, and the process is made, again, holistic when it's within the framework and foundation of being plugged into the local church. 
potential leaders had to learn to follow before leading. The consistent pattern in the book of Acts never separates evangelism and discipleship as if the, the former evangelism, as if the former um, succeeded in producing new believers even if the latter was neglected. So if evangelism succeeded even if discipleship was neglected. Uh, in obedience to Christ's command in making disciples, Matthew chapter 28, um, the disciples baptized and instructed new believers. Uh, the therefore statement in that passage of the Great Commission, um, therefore go and make disciples, connects the assignment of disciple making to not only the, the not only to the disciples, but to every church that comes after them. The Great Commission's emphasis falls on the, the work of nurturing in discipleship rather than just the proclamation of the gospel. The atmosphere for training leaders to engage in, in missionary work and to strengthen local churches permeates the experience of discipleship. Uh, and we have this model, we practice this model here uh, at Aletheia. The eldership realized that they were about to enter a period of time when they would go from having maybe a, like an overabundance of leaders, leaders within the, the eldership. I think just before I came, they had like seven? What was, it, what was the all-time high? Six. Six? Um, and then, um, then they were about to enter a time where, due to certain events, they found themselves with three, and shortly after that, with two, when Pastor Monty retired a few years ago. Um, so naturally, you know, they prayed about it, and they started grooming the congregation for um, leaders and recognizing that a need was coming for that. Um, and for, for leaders to step up, for people within the community to step up and lead um, with them. Uh, and to make a long story short, we know how this story ends. Seven years later, and I'm not doing this to, you know, whatever, glorify anything, but seven years later, Colin and, and myself are here. Um, but that didn't come, and still doesn't come, uh, with a, without a deep level of investment, not just from um, us, but from, from their end, too, to, to um, disciple us in that way and to teach us what it means to be godly leaders. It took seven years. <laughs> That's a long time. Uh, we had a very thorough, thorough knowledge of all aspects, not just academics. Remember the first week we talked about the, the overemphasis on academics rather than living with um, and relational part of the ministry. Um, we had a well-formed well um, idea of what was, what was to come and what we were getting into, and we didn't take it lightly, and we still don't, for the record. We entered into it with great humility, knowing that there is, that there was and still is, a lot to learn from these people who have been living it before us, um, who have done it longer and will continue to live in it with us. Uh, Colin and I didn't recognize the need uh, and the call uh, to step up as leaders and then decide that we needed to go to like leader school, whatever that is, or like go get a degree somewhere, you know, like how to be a, a good businessmen or something like that. Um, we did it within the local church, within what the church offers, within the discipleship relationship that was available to us with the people right in front of us. And if we want to know what leaders know, we should continually be seeking out 
um, those types of relationships and seeking to understand their lives. So, <clears throat> to sort of put a harsh stop on it, we talked about scripture at the, the first week, we talked about doctrine today, and we talked about discipleship fostered through the active involvement within the local church. If we want to know what a leader knows, to be trained and equipped in the same way to be effective, godly leaders, then we have to have a meaningful understanding and practice these three areas of our lives if we want to know what leaders know and if we want to be better leaders ourselves and be trained and equipped um, toward that end. So that's what I have for you guys today, this month, whatever. Um, and I have some questions for you guys. Uh, before I start, James's cell group will be in here. Okay? Okay. Questions to talk about today, guys. What are you doing to better familiarize yourself with Scripture? Question one. Sort of a, a rehash. How are you treating the importance of understanding sound Christian doctrine? Do you think that it even matters, or are you just focused on loving Jesus, and you know the rest is unimportant or debatable, and even how you love Jesus is up for debate? Would you be a part of those um, unfortunate statistics that I read where people have fallen away or completely don't understand the fundamental truths of their faith um, that have already been settled? What are you doing to make sure you stay grounded in these truths? How are you involved in the local church through discipleship relationships? Are you? Are you entering into these relationships with a proper heart, wanting to learn and wanting to master those areas that you can master through learning uh, and living life with those people? And then lastly, just sort of a general question for you guys. How has your understanding for what is needed to be a godly leader changed in the last month uh, when it comes to the training and equipping process of that? So these are the questions we can discuss today. And again, James Cell Group. Here. Thanks.